Welcome to Making a Splash, the arts and culture podcast that celebrates swimming and the sea. I'm your host, Amber Butchart, a dress historian and keen but incredibly unaccomplished sea swimmer. When I was in my early 20s, I got my first tattoo, a small heart on my forearm, and I returned to my coastal hometown of Lowestoft to get it done. This had, I must say, somewhat mixed results, and I got it touched up later that year when I visited New York for the first time. And to mark the occasion, I got a fouled anchor inscribed onto my leg. More maritime symbols followed with the tattoos that came, a swallow on my foot and a skull and crossbones on my ankle. This was a spur-of-the-moment decision when visiting Toronto with a friend who returned the gesture by getting the outline of a chip fork indelibly marked onto his arm when he came to London the following year. So what is it about these symbols that provide even the most land-happy of landlubbers with a taste of life on the ocean waves? Today's guest can help to shed some light. Dr Matt Lodder is an art historian and curator who specialises in the history of tattooing through his work as senior lecturer in art history and theory and director of American studies at the University of Essex. Stay tuned as we discuss a whole host of interesting areas, from the symbolism of folk art and maritime crafts to the real Sailor Jerry and why the recording and documenting of certain bodies has skewed our understanding of tattoo history. We also discuss swimming outdoors from Essex to Bondi, swimming with Elsa Schiaparelli in the 1920s, and why women often drive tattoo stories in the media. When did your interest in tattoos begin? I was obsessed with tattooing from when I was tiny, I guess. Like, you know, I grew up, I was born in 1980, and I grew up in the era of hair metal and WWF wrestling. So there was there was lots of you know lots of the bands and and lots of the kind of pop culture icons I really loved were tattooed and I got told uh, like I always tell these stories but like I got told two kind of cautionary tales by my grandparents like my my granddad was a submariner uh, in the Dutch Navy during World War Two and he always used to tell me I think as a sort of way to try and dissuade me from getting tattooed like he used to tell me that he woke up drunk on his rum ration. Uh, in a tattooist chair in the Dutch East Indies, right in in Jakarta, as they were about to tattoo a fly on the end of his nose. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> and he woke, uh, yeah, and he woke up just in time, and and never got tattooed. But yeah, it was that was always the kind of like cautionary tale because my my um my uncle, uh, my my dad's sister's husband had a big anchor tattoo. Like he was he had a big navy tattoo. So that was the that was the kind of maritime side of it, and then. The other story that I got told was by my my dad's mom, who actually grew up in Kent, and her brother, her mum had a tattoo. So my great grandma had a tattoo, and the story goes that one day my my great uncle came home from school one day with a tattoo machine, and basically said, "Hey, little sister, can I tattoo you?" And she said, "Will it come off?" Oh, and he no. said, "Yes." <laughs> so, so yeah. So she apparently had Ethelwyn Darby was her name. So she had ED tattooed on her wrist. I never she died before I was born, so I've never met her. But that was also, you know, obviously she sort of hated that, <laughs> never wanted it. 
and that was the cautionary tale. And of course, like, you know, again, I say this a lot, but like you tell kids not to jump in puddles and we'll go jump in puddles. And for me, that was just, that was just it really, you know, away, away I went. And I, I just got really, yeah, really obsessed with the kind of the romance of, of, of tattooing. And when I got a little bit older, I was going up to London buying punk records and things from tower records. And while I was there, I was buying import American tattoo magazines and yeah. And I got, you know, got, it was the, by that point it was the nineties. So I was getting copies of modern primitives and tattoo time imported and just really just sort of fell in love with it. And yeah, you know, here we are. Well, how old were you when you got your first tattoo? So I didn't actually get tattooed until uh, I was 21. I went to uni, um, uh, to do a languages degree and I went to live in France for a year. It might've been because I was also sufficiently away from my parents for a long enough time, maybe to get away with it. Um, but I went to a tattoo convention in Belfort in France. There was an American guy tattooing there as it happens, a guy called Jack Mosher. I saw him actually like not that long ago and he obviously didn't remember me, but I was like, it's all your fault, mate. Um, <laughs> and all I got, all I got done was some black stars on my wrists. Um, so like literally anyone could have done it and the guy at the end of the street could have done it. So yeah, that was, that was that. So I, I sort of, you know, I have a lot of mediocre tattoos, I sort of I always say, but I haven't got any really terrible teenage ones and I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm grateful for it. Like if I'd have been allowed to get tattooed or, or had enough money to get tattooed or been, brave enough to get tattooed when I was like you know 17 or something I would it would be a very different story I think. That actually shows remarkable restraint I think the fact that you were reading tattoo magazines you were even going to conventions and you were just like I'm gonna wait till this American tattooer of dreams comes into my life. <laughs> yeah and it was you know it was also it was weird because I have I have ADHD and terrible impulse control so <laughs> I guess I'm quite lucky in in a way that I that I didn't because I mean I, none of my friends were tattooed and I didn't you know I didn't really hang out with tattooed people until I went to uni and and met loads of tattooed folk so like you know I didn't I wasn't really embedded in tattoo culture at a young age I didn't live in a big city I know I've always been you know, I've always been sort of bookish and nerdy about things and I just spent too much time researching it you know well you know fellow historian like we spend too much time <laughs> bookish nerdy yeah understood yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah 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 definitely definitely well when speaking of bookish and nerdy when did you realize you could turn this into a career i mean that was quite late as well really like i started you know my dad i was the first in my family to go to uni and my my dad said to me when i was looking at going to university no one will pay you to read books for a living you know, like go and go and go and go and do something proper. Okay, I was I was like doing theatre studies A level and reading Brecht and being very earnest and stuff, reading French poetry. And then you know it was like, well, no one's going to pay to do that. So, and I didn't know I didn't really know the difference between one university from the other, and my family certainly didn't. So they were very accommodating, and I was like, okay, well, yeah, languages. I'll go and do a I'll go and do a languages degree, and I'll I'll become a translator, right? And it wasn't until I kind of tried doing that and realized that the travel part of it that I imagined all that romance of traveling the world was actually just hotel rooms and conference centers. <laughs> um, you know, that, that I, I was wanting to see something else. And I was just really lucky that I did this amazing class in my final year at uni on, um, on the body. There was that period of time when, you know, it was that kind of corporeal turn in the humanities. I now know, you know, it's like, and, and, and I was a woman doing a, final year module at uni and she taught a, a class on remakes of european cinema and she was sort of talking about 
you know, all these mad French and Spanish and German films that were made into Hollywood blockbusters. And I was like, oh, this looks much more fun. Like, this is the kind of thing you can do with languages. And I saw her give a research paper. Like, the first research paper I ever saw anyone give was her, Anne, Dr. Anne White. She's now retired. But she gave a paper about masculinity in beer advertising, which was her research project. Because we, I was in Bradford and we had the National Media Museum there and she was doing loads of amazing archive research. And I was like, wow, she gets to like talk about all these, all this amazing stuff. So, um, I, I'd love to do that about, but about tattooing. And then, you know, I went looking for books and, and, and stuff. And the more I read, I started to get, get tattooed by that point. And the, the more I read, the less made sense to me as someone who was tattooed and who'd been kind of immersed in tattoo culture for, a, you know, probably a decade of my life or more at that point. Again, as you know, like if you go looking for quest for answers and you don't find them, that's that's where that's where this kind of career comes from. And I had a very supportive. I did a master's degree in the body, um, where we did all this amazing interdisciplinary work on art history, philosophy, cybernetics, psychology, theatre, like everything. All these all these uh, disciplines about the body. An art historian, Sue Morvan, came up to me and said, "You should come do a PhD in art history." I said, "I don't think I know much about art, really." But she was like, "Oh, you'll figure it out." um and that was and that was it you know fantastic now we've done loads and loads of events together that are all sort of vaguely about the sea we've actually got one more coming up uh, for the national maritime museum online in september and you were a huge huge help to me when i was researching my nautical chic book and i came to see you and you told me about all the myths to do with you know maritime tattoos nautical tattoos so a big question that I know you've covered a lot, why do we associate tattoos with sailors? There's a great uh, aphorism that I read in a book of sailor handicrafts that actually wasn't about tattooing, but it was about um, other things that sailors make. And it said, you know, sailors cannot leave their mark on the sea. And I love, I love that as a phrase. It really resonates, you know. There's something about that nomadism of being at sea and having occasional you know, lots of moments of kind of dullness of stillness when you can't do anything and your chores are done and you're bored and 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 i think that's one of the reasons that you know you're, you're homesick and you're in this kind of really really paradoxical set of circumstances where you want to fit in you want to belong to this community of kind of misfits and strangers that you've been thrown in so there's this kind of communality thing but you also want to stand out because you're normally forced to wear a uniform etc so it's this kind of means motive opportunity i think that lends uh tattooing a really kind of maritime bent and certainly has done historically i mean there's also this fact that sailors always have needles on them you know for darning sa um sails and darning their socks and things and you've always got some gunpowder handy <laughs> yeah 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 that's one of the things i found really fascinating when i was researching the nautical chic book as well the fact that in the Western world, especially, we tend to associate needlework, handicrafts with, with women. It has been, you know, feminized over the last few hundred years, maybe 300 years or so. But you do find this real culture of sewing with sailors. And there's just recently been a, a book published. I have a copy of it. I've not yet read it, but it's called Queering the Subversive Stitch. Oh, wow. And I'm really looking forward to reading it. I know you would love it, Matt. You would love it. And the cover of it. So it's obviously a response to Rosika Parker's Subversive Stitch. Very well known art history uh, you know, book written in the 80s. And it, the cover of it is a sailor sewing so i'm super excited wow. to get stuck in i know i know you will love it you will love it i'll certainly send you a link to it but there's also i love what you say about 
A, sailors have the needles on them and B, there's this sort of time sitting around with not much else to do. And you get those similar aesthetics with things like scrimshaw as well and tattoos, don't you? So it's very much that sort of maritime art, folk art, I suppose. Yeah, so the images and I, you know, this is one of the kind of underlying arguments if you want to put it that grandly of my work it's that tattooing sort of exists always in this visual culture landscape it's often written about when it's been written about by people who aren't art historians as as this kind of very self-contained phenomena but yeah if you look at the images the same images you find scratched into love tokens tobacco tins stitched into you know uh, textiles of all kinds etched into wood all kinds of all kinds of things and there's a real kind of continuity of image and is, is this kind of yeah folk art um, imagery nothing it's not very complicated iconographically it's it's very basic human emotions that we find you know, in all folk art but you know in tattooing you find essentially the i always say uh, the things you love the things you hate and the things you want to have sex with um, essentially right <laughs> there may be some overlap with some of those <laughs> Ex- yeah exactly right so it's family religion um there's an amazing article from the 80s by a guy called ira die real c- classic in tattoo history scholarship where he basically surveys the seamen's records of the american navy at the end of the 18th the beginning of the 19th century and does a kind of taxonomy there's a whole i mean you could really just use it today actually as a taxonomy of 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 imagery you know it's things like flowers love uh, mythological creatures celestial objects and then things of the sea so i wrote an article that steals that for the title things of the sea and and, you know and the other thing of course like we find tattooing a lot in um in, in prehistoric cultures as well partly because it's easier to carry a tattoo around with you than it is Uh, any other kind of object of status or of memory so if you're moving around a lot and you're limited uh, on board a ship for example with the amount of stuff you can have with you it's quite difficult to have pictures or even you know lockets with you although many sailors did do that and a tattoo is just a convenient way of making sure that the thing you want to carry with you the memory the um symbology the story the image is always with you and you can't lose it you know I love that. I love that. Literally inscribed on the body, memory inscribed yeah. on the body. So nice. Yeah. And I think that can, you know, that can be really overblown sometimes. I, so there's, there's often this metaphor of like, you know, tattooing as a diary, for example. And I, I think that's okay, but it's always quite partial because it, it, that does make the tattoo kind of too individualistic. If that makes any sense, um, the the way to read tattooing has always is often been in other disciplines this kind of you know marker of this sort of dermal diagnosis. My friend Nikki Sullivan coined the term for it. But actually, tattoos, like other folk art, actually is more about the cultural moment than it is about the individual. So tattoos will always tell you more about the the place and the individual person um, in any detail. So why are tattoos not just for sailors? Look, there's there's always lots of sailors getting tattooed, you know, and I think there is, there's this idea, the, so the idea that tattoos are quite, quite just for sailors is a kind of persistent cliche. And it really comes, you know, you still find it today. It really comes about because a, a time when there's lots of sailors tattooing themselves coincides with the time when the Royal Navy are writing down what kind of tattoos people have. So in the beginning of the 19th century, there's this kind of archival lens thing where you go you go looking for tattooing and you find it in Seaman's record books because like normal people, average working class people aren't having their bodies recorded um, unless, unless, by the way, they're 
they're prisoners, right? So, so you don't get a kind of vernacular tattoo history in the in the archival record in the same way, and that's really just led to a kind of myth making that tattooing is very restricted to nautical populations when actually it's always been a bit broader than that. Certainly from the 19th century onwards, there was this idea that tattooing was discovered in the Pacific and that Western culture either didn't know or had forgotten about tattooing until until they encountered it in the Pacific. And like nothing could be further from the truth. Um, it it's actually seems to me pretty likely that, for example, some of Cook's men were tattooed before they even left London. It wasn't called tattooing, it was called pricking or marking. But certainly we have records of, you know, permanent marks on the skin of a very sort of familiar iconography going right the way back into the 17th century and probably even earlier. But what's happened over the over the centuries is that that kind of archival lens has really produced a kind of, yeah, cultural imaginary of the tattooed sailor. Some of the images that I was really falling in love with when I was a teenager were of tattooed sailors. I re There's a beautiful image of a, 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 a guy that was in the American Navy in World War II called Bob Shaw, who was tattooed by Burt Grimm on the Pike, Long Beach in California, and really sort of classic sailor tattooing of the kind of American mid-century kind. And like that romantic image of the tattooed sailor is so burned into our cultural memory and cultural imaginary that it's hard to escape it but you know but tattooing's always been more diverse than that there's been loads of sailors always and tattooing has been very prevalent in port cities uh, in the west but certainly when we get a professional tattoo industry for example but even before then really tattooing's been been a lot more diverse than i think people imagine and also women as well um you know you, it's so interesting that idea that it's the bodies that are recorded that are the ones we associate with tattoos so like you say obviously sailors people at sea but then also the criminals and there is does tend to be this sort of link with criminality this idea that i think persists in the present day even though tattooing is so commonplace now you know across society and a lot of your research really uncovers um those sort of hidden stories especially to do with people like women who have been thought of as way too genteel <laughs> to have tattoos and things like that but that's so not the case at all is it no i mean so obviously you know, tattooing has so you know tattooing has always skewed professional tattooing has always skewed a bit you know, more male than female certainly more male than female in terms of the people doing it and, and always more kind of, let's say, lower lower middle class or working class than otherwise. But it's always been much more diverse than that. And even like, you know, in the 1870s, as early as that, there is a great article in the American press where this gonzo journalist kind of hears rumours of a, tat a woman doing tattoos and she, he sort of finds this woman tattooing this delicate thing on a, on a girl's ankle. And it's a beautiful picture of you know, the tattooist in her big, long, late 19th century dress and the woman she's tattooing. Women have always been part of the story. I mean, I think also there's, a, again, this slight kind of pro reverse problem in a way for, for me with, with women in tattooing, because when the media have written about tattooing, it's almost always been women that have led the story because like oh my god women are getting tattooed now shock horror it's often been a good excuse particularly in the edwardian period to print pictures of women with far fewer clothes on than would normally be pictured in the newspapers uh -huh. so, yeah. so 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 again i sort of have to be careful i think it, about making this mistake in the other, other direction but there, there are named women tattooists uh, who we know nothing about other than their names in the 1911 census for example and the 1901 census in britain even you know even like through the 20th century there's loads of good stories in the tattoo community of on a busy day that the, the, the tattooer would like 
tattoo the uh, the, the color, but the, the wife would do the outline. You know, almost production line. World War One, like 1917, the only tattooer in the South London Street directory is a woman who had who was married to a, a, a tattooist as well. So it often kind of went in the family. But yeah, you know, it, and, and also the moral panic stuff about tattooing, which we still see today. Um, I mean, literally, it's 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 still in the papers today. Again, it's often been like, oh my god, women are getting tattooed now. Shock horror. Right. There's a great, my, my friend, um, who's a tattoo historian in France, uh, she sent me this amazing picture from, um, the late 19th century in France. And French tattooing was always a, a bit less salubrious than it was in, in Britain, partly because tattooing got banned in the French Navy quite early on because there was a hepatitis outbreak, which didn't happen in the Royal Navy. So tattooing was a lot more stigmatized in France, but it also became this kind of youth culture thing in France a lot quicker than it did in Britain. And this amazing image of, it's like the most French thing ever of this kind of flat capped tattooer tattooing this French young French girl's arm while her friend like sits down, like smoking a cigarette and plays cards, like watching along, you know, all these kind of marks of delinquent youth. And that, I mean, that goes, and that goes all the way through. That goes all the way through. I mean, there's a great one from the women's pages of the Hull Daily Mail from the 1950s. In fact, it is 1950 where Miss Humber, who's the women's correspondent of the Hull Daily Mail is like, Oh yeah, I hear that women are getting tattooed these days. I just, what will women think of next? And then the next week, these young women like write in and say, we're not drunken sailors. We're getting beautiful tattoos on our, to show off in our, in our evening gowns, you know, I love that. and that, and that kind of persistence of cliche is really interesting. You know, it's almost a question of not why is tattooing so popular now, but why has the media always been surprised that it was? Now, a lot of people now know about Sailor Jerry style tattoos, quite a popular particular aesthetic style but he was a real man can you tell me about him yeah so norman collins was his name and he tattooed in in hawaii in honolulu hawaii was this amazing kind of cultural melting pot right um and particularly after the war uh, it had a kind of i mean even even before the war i mean there was internment and things with japanese americans but it was a it was a real place of a kind of cultural melting pot because it was a port city and because it was a good staging post for the pacific fleets you had like canadians and dutch and french uh, fleets coming through and so he really kind of made his name tattooing you know, just very classic wartime stuff. Wars are good for tattooers because it's a good time for for marking memories and signifying this kind of uniqueness, but also paradoxically your connection to something bigger. So the same thing was happening in in Britain. But yeah, Jerry was a was a real pioneer. I mean, lots of so lots of his designs were lifted. You know, tattooing is this amazing because it is a folk art. It is. It is this kind of iterative process. Lots of his designs weren't exactly original to him. Um, he was taking designs from people like Brooklyn Joe Lieber and others. He was selling flash. He was trading designs. He had apprentices and he trained people up. So he kind of passed a legacy around the US. His flash was amazing. So he used to make deliberate mistakes in his flash. So if you didn't buy it directly from him, you wouldn't know how not to muck it up. He'd join lines up incorrectly or, you know, an animal would have a missing leg or something. Or, you know, there'd, there'd be a kind of mistake in it. And if you bought it from him, an official copy, he'd let you know how to do it properly. But if you just got a kind of knockoff rubbing, you'd have a an awful knockoff. 
he wasn't i mean he was known in his day but he his legacy was really cemented through the work of ed hardy who was you know grew up in in california grew up on the uh, west coast of the us and fell, again like you know, fell in love with tattooing as a young man went to art school and didn't like it because it wasn't it wasn't enough like the tattooing that he was into and he became a kind of tattoo historian and and was collecting things and he was really him and a guy called mike malone uh, Rollo are really responsible for kind of cementing Jerry's legacy in the popular imagination. I suppose they were publishing um, uh, some of his images and flash that they had in their collection in in tattoo time in the seventies and eighties. I love your exhibition, British Tattoo Art Revealed, which is a touring show that so far I've seen at the Maritime Museum in Falmouth in Cornwall, and also at the Historic Dockyard in Chatham. Wanted to be able to see it absolutely everywhere it goes. Unfortunately, I have not done that yet, but. Tell me about the process of putting that together. My my uh, role, I think, as a tattoo historian, I mean, there, there are the the history of the things I work on are really kept by the community, and they're kept by a sort of generation, really, of guys, and it is actually all guys mostly with the collectors who were who were kids in the fifties and sixties, actually, and who were old enough and interested in tattooing enough in the 70s when that generation of people like Sailor Jerry were dying and Ed, actually Ed Hardy comes into this generation too really to to realise that this stuff was going to be worth keeping and saving and looking after because no museum really was very interested in it, certainly not in any systematic way. And so the kind of knowledge of tattoo history is really kept by by the community. When academics like myself in previous generations have tried to access that, it's always been very prurient, very voyeuristic and very um, lacking in empathy, I think. And so those those people who have the collections just haven't shared it. And, and you know, even if they've been discovered by by academics. Because people of my generation, we, we got to be a tattoo fans first and academic second, we have kind of an interesting foot in both camps. And rather than trying to tell the story of tattooing from the outside, I think what I'm trying to do, and I've really realised this, I think doing the exhibition helped me realise this, is that I think I'm a kind of conduit for all the amazing knowledge from the community to the public. So my job as a historian is to try and distill some of that stuff into stuff that's interesting for a general public and to contextualise it, so to put it into broader stories of political, social, economic, cultural history um, in a way that maybe those guys who are just obsessed with tattooing aren't um, able or you know, they don't want to do that. So that's what I saw the, the exhibition process of doing. The Maritime Museum in Falmouth, really, they were going to do something about the Bly mutiny because it was coming up to the anniversary of that. And they wanted just to do a little thing about tattooing in the Pacific because some of the Bly mutineers were tattooed after the mutiny so they got tattooed in, in tahiti and they came to me to help them with a little display panel and then i said oh well tattooing wasn't discovered in the pacific and actually there's this other whole big history and they went oh <laughs> okay what what's going on with that and i said well why don't we do an exhibition about that and we were going to do a little couple of cabinets in this bly exhibition and then it became we as you saw when it was in falmouth we took over basically three quarters of the exhibition space and you know we had 400 objects in that show we could have had could have had many more most of which were from private collections and it became this kind of yeah like 400 year sort of unbroken story of tattoo history in britain the collectors were amazing because they were very generous and very trusting with us you know these these are often things that people don't want to let out of their sight 
will this be safe in your museum? Because I'd rather have it under my bed or in my shed or whatever, which is a very different set of mindsets for museum people to get their head around. It was such a great response that it ended up on tour and it wasn't meant to tour. It was meant to be just this one year thing, but we packaged it up and it was on tour basically right up until the pandemic sort of brought it to a grinding halt. But we, we went to, yeah, like pretty much every venue was a maritime venue, I think, other than one most of which were sort of deprived towns. We went to Yarmouth, we went to Portsmouth, Chatham, Bristol. I mean, people who were into tattooing were like, I, it's so great to see tattooing in a museum. And people who didn't like tattooing were like, I, I never knew that this was such a deep and rich and complicated set of stories. I love your research into Jessie Knight as well, the first prominent female tattoo artist in Britain. And she featured very prominently in your show, your exhibition. Can you tell me about her? Yeah, well, we couldn't have, we couldn't have done the show really without Jessie's collection. So her collection was unusual because she retired from tattooing in the 1970s. So she was born in the Edwardian period. I think she was born in about 1909, something like that off the top of my head. And she died um, in her 90s. So she died in the early 90s. But she'd retired from tattooing and sort of fortunately for us, really, just at a time before this kind of generation of collectors were around. So her stuff didn't end up dispersed piecemeal like a lot of other collections did do and actually just stayed in the family and her family was a super interesting one she was from a really big very amazing family so her dad was a guy called sailor knight who was a tattooist but also a circus performer her sister was a sharpshooter her brother-in-law was a knife thrower another one of her brother-in-laws was a cowboy act called rex roper they were from so they were born in southampton but they they lived in wales for a long time jesse's dad uh so he went he, his name was sailor knight charlie knight also two gun ricks was his cowboy act name he went out to sea back to sea in 1927 when jesse was 18 and she took over the family tattoo shop in barry in wales and she then went on to train. So her dad had tattooed uh, an amazing woman called Princess Christina, who was a very prominent tattooed woman who was married to a guy called Charlie Bell, who tattooed in Chatham. And Jesse went and um, tattooed in Chatham and then in Portsmouth and then in Aldershot. And she was very connected in with the kind of 1950s British tattoo scene, really, if we want to put it that way. She came runner-up in the champion of all England tattoo competition in 1955. I think because she'd grown up in this kind of very interesting and kind of wild family, but also in a really... So her, her grandmother was a poet who wrote like greetings cards in the Victorian period. So she had a kind of lyrical thing. All of her shop signs were in blank verse, for example. So she was pretty tough. Do you want to talk about the book you're writing? The book that I'm actually finishing off this summer is going to be a collection of, it's not really a tattoo, book of tattoo history, um, so much of it's a kind of history through tattooing. So I'm using a kind of series of biographical vignettes across really the whole span of human history to try and tell a kind of interconnected story of, of humankind it's not quite as grand as a kind of history of humanity but it's it's a history through tattooing and so we're looking at ancient egyptian tattoos which is way out of my normal time frame but also you know the amazing story this is a, relevant for your podcast for the amazing story of a, a another amazing young girl called madeline altman who was tattooed in 1906 um down on the bowery 
Um, her dad was an insurance salesman, but she wanted to run away to sea. So she went down to the Bowery and got tattooed by Sailor Pete and ended up with a battleship on her chest and a sailor girl on her arm and, you know, was hanging out. They found her with like love letters from, I mean, she was like 15, basically. She was, they found her with love letters from sailors like stuffed in her pockets and she was drinking rum on the, in the flop houses on the Bowery. There's a few, sort of a couple of weeks in the New York press where they cover this story. And she's just, she just comes across this amazing, tough, young, you know, New York broad. And it's this kind of almost, this is quite sweet story. But the more I researched it, it kind of got quite dark because she got shipped off to a, like a correctional house, basically a kind of how, like a house of juvenile reform, um, which can't have been very nice. And then she, she did end up marrying a sailor boy, but I don't, she didn't stay with him for very long and she sort of disappears from the historical record and it's, it's it's a bit of a tragic tale but these are the kind of things that tattoo history can tell us you know like again the way that tattooing is often written about is this it's this very separate set of stories that get told as if they're disconnected from everything else but because tattooing is so communal actually rather than so individual you end up with stories of places and times and moments which can get you access to lots of other things so this book we have histories of the ancient persian postal system in there for example or beef exports during the cold war fashion design in 1920s paris now i know you swam in the sea in folkestone over this last pandemic year before that had you spent much time swimming in the sea so yeah like i so i was a really keen swimmer when i was a kid and we used to come down to folkestone actually so um my nan had a static caravan in dimchurch so we used to come down to the sea like a couple of times a year because i didn't grow up by the sea i don't have that kind of romance that people who did grow up by the sea have like my dad for example, is from Melbourne in Australia, and he was always very sniffy about the British seaside because he was like, "Call that a beach," you know? Yeah, I have Australian friends who are the same. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I don't have that kind of deep like connection to the sea. I think that people who grew up by the seaside do, but it was always it was always good fun, and I I, did, I always enjoyed swimming, and I always was was really fond of it. But essentially, what happened was I just got really blind. Like I started wearing glasses when I was quite young, and that's not really conducive to swimming in the sea or swimming anywhere and so i yeah i sort of stopped really you know like when i went to australia about a decade ago and swam on bondi which was great but you know it was very it was very punctuated by worrying if my glasses were still attached to my face and then yeah when i when i went swimming this summer my i lost my glasses in the sea <laughs> i got hit by a wave from behind and lost lost my glasses in the sea so that is that is always the thing. I don't go swimming much anymore. I mean, I also went like I live near the sort of near the sea in Essex, um, and I went wild swimming in Brightling Sea with my dear friend Jordan, who loves wild swimming. And I'm quite unfit. I'm quite middle aged. <laughs> don't say that. You're the same age as me. Ah. <laughs> I'm well. I'm just all too aware of it. But yeah, so I, I do love. I love. I love swimming, and I love swimming in the sea. But I, I I'm always just that's always tempered with fear that i'm gonna lose my glasses have you ever had any tattoos at the coast I, actually that's a good question i do have lots of nautical themed things so i have a very nautical kind of vibe about my tattoos so i've got you know i've got a, a nice 1920s brooklyn joe lieber uh, ship on my arm and a, a mermaid and and I, i've been yeah i've been tattooed i've been tattooed in um in copenhagen for example uh you know in in that uh, which has got a great tattoo 
history. Um, the King of Denmark used to get wheeled back from the docks in a wheelbarrow from the tattoo studio. King Frederick the Tenth, because it's just the tattoo shops was just and the docks were just around the corner from the palace. So that actually that shop, the guys that own that now did an amazing. Have I think it's still ongoing, but have done an amazing shop of a job of trying to keep it from getting redeveloped because it's one of the most important tattoo shops in the world really tattoo neuhaven well in in terms of classically nautical tattoos the most obvious one is you've got an anchor on your face yeah i've got a fouled anchor on my face what's the story behind that the anchor is this very traditional tattoo symbol you know folk art symbol actually let's not just say it's a tattoo symbol because it obviously symbolizes safety and permanence and home and you know stability the kind of things that you don't have when you're out at sea uh, and the fouled anchor is is a little bit more pessimistic <laughs> version of that right but i got so i got i got tattooed on my face after i got my phd because it was like i wanted to i mean it's i think probably having a phd makes you less employable than having a tattoo on your face in a way <laughs> i love it <laughs> <laughs> right and and it was it, there was a real kind of rubicon so i, I didn't get to do it on my hands or my neck or my face when i was uh, until i had my phd because it was really important and that was a real old school thing anyway actually lots of old guy old school guys wouldn't get tattooed visibly or tattoo anyone visibly but for me like that it was important to or it was fun let's put it that way just to kind of have that tension between like here's this guy with facial tattoos and he pulls out his debit card and it's it's dr dr lodder so i always liked that tension and yeah i i don't it's not really overdetermined it was just sort of a fun fairly spare of the moment thing and I, as i said like the images that i fell in love with when i was uh, really falling in love with tattooing were all really sort of sailor jerry burke grimm Owen Jensen, um, like all those guys that were tattooing in New York and San Francisco in the 30s, 40s, and all of those really kind of, you know, again, romantic, handsome looking sailors. And, and, and that's the stuff that I fell in love with. And, you know, I wanted to have green faded arms and I wanted to, I was a kind of like grammar school boy from Essex, but like that was, that was the dream. <laughs> I've got a fouled anchor as well. I have a fouled anchor on my leg. I obviously don't have nearly as many tattoos as you, but the majority of the tattoos I do have all have some sort of nautical theme. Just the classic ones. I've got a fouled anchor. I've got a swallow. I've got a skull and crossbones. I think of them as accessories, almost like jewellery, basically. Things that I would want on jewellery or clothes. That's what I now have on my body. Yeah, and that's and again, like that is for many people who were getting tattooed that was their function as well right like there was there's a lot of uh, mythology about oh this tattoo means this you know if you've got a um i don't know a turtle on you it means you've crossed the equator or whatever and like those kind of those kind of straightforward like x equals y like symbolic things were definitely true in narrow context so in particular moments in time or on particular ships or in particular regiments or whatever where yeah you would get a kind of particular tattoo to mark a particular thing but but that's always been the exception rather than the rule you know we find swallows for example and pierced hearts we find those in folk art which is of other kinds as well in religious folk art and um, they're very straight again straightforward symbols they're not complicated iconographically and they tell the right kind of story for being away from home for a long time here's who i love here's who i hate here's who i want to have sex with back to that again perfect yeah yeah <laughs> what's your favorite place that you've ever swum oh that's a beautiful question i 
Yeah, I re- so I really enjoyed swimming with Jordan, my friend Jordan, uh, in Brightling Sea because I hadn't really quite realised how nice the Essex coast was near where I you know, near where I work and where I live now. And I was just really surprised to find this very warm, very comfortable little kind of inlet, almost kind of coastal lido there at Brightling Sea, and that was that was really beautiful, and I really really enjoyed and valued that. Some of my colleagues actually do wild swimming up the river. Uh, in um, in the coln um, and I've not been brave enough to try that yet but maybe you've inspired me Amber to go and um... <laughs> well we'll come we'll come and visit and we can all do it together <laughs> yeah yeah that would be that would be really lovely that would be really lovely and I and I, I really enjoyed swimming in, in Australia um, at Bondi it was really good fun I, I should I should do more of it really I should do more of it well who would be your ideal swimming companion real or imaginary dead or alive that's a really crazy question. I mean, so you and I have been talking a lot about Elsa Schiaparelli, right? And her nautical-themed swimsuits from the 1910-1920, summer nineteen twenty nine collection. I sort of feel like she'd be quite fun to hang out on the beach. That is a great you answer. <laughs> yeah. She's just... There's, I mean, there's plenty of other people I could think of probably, but like, because you and I have talked about Elsa a lot, and I've there's a, a chapter about her in the book as well. Um, she's been quite uppermost in my mind and she obviously had a particularly kind of bohemian connection to the seaside where she designed these like they're called lizarding suits right where you'd wear your um very risque very cool skin tone bathing suit and then you could just put on this jacket and and loose trousers over the top of them and then go straight to the beach straight to the straight to the beach bar or straight to the restaurant in the Cote d'Azur that always struck me just because i've been thinking about it so much in the last few weeks that strikes me as lovely like having a lovely warm swim in the med and then going to have some cocktails you know with with elsa and her her bohemian pals in like 1920s paris my god matt that sounds like such a dream <laughs> can we do it <laughs> can we please do it maybe true for you too but most of the things i'm interested in without really me realizing it at the time come back to either paris in the 20s like interwar paris or san francisco in the in in the same roughly the same period or slightly afterwards right like through into the 60s there's those two places for some reason those kind of places where they're just bringing together interesting people maybe it's because they're also they have a kind of maritime-esque culture about them you know paris although not being on the sea obviously has a interesting relationship to the water and the river and there's something always about paris in the 20s and and san francisco in the 60s i guess that all the art I love, all the music I love, all the political things I find so interesting, you know, we could, we go, we, so we could, we could go hang out in, in Paris or, or let's say, let's go to the French seaside in the 1920s. We can have Elsa Schiaparelli. We can have Josephine Baker. We could have Man Ray, Man Ray, Lee Miller. Lee Miller. Oh yeah. He's so good. It's interesting. You mentioned San Francisco as well, because it was actually reading a book about the Barbary coast in San Francisco in the 19th century and I read that book in Hawaii a long time ago and it was that that inspired me to write my master's thesis on nautical swimwear and that's really where my career began in terms of nautical fashion history so definitely yeah yeah I've never I've never been I've never been San Francisco and I I almost sort of I almost wonder if the the romance of it is it could be better than the reality. I'm sure it will be. I think definitely now. Yeah. With the Silicon Valley, probably San Francisco is maybe past its prime. <laughs> Where's top of your list to swim that you haven't yet swum? Well, yeah. So maybe so maybe San Francisco is on that list. Hawaii potentially as well. 
places that I think. So I'm not much of a beach guy. So I'm not one for like lounging around on the beach. My my partner is. We're going on our honeymoon to Puerto Rico. Partly because that's going to have beautiful beaches, but also loads of interesting history for me to go and schlep around with. So I need to find somewhere that had enough kind of seaside history as well as good swimming. If we're talking seaside swimming. So yeah, so so Puerto Rico, which I'm really looking forward to, which is going to happen. And then more speculatively, now you've mentioned Hawaii. <laughs> that's exactly what I look for as well. Swimming and history. Like if somewhere's got those two places, it is a total winner. Thank you so much for listening and thanks to Matt for being such a great guest. Head to the episode details to find more information on everything discussed today from Matt's exhibition to the event we have coming up together for the National Maritime Museum. If you've enjoyed this, please do rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can find out more about future guests at my Instagram page at Amber Butchart. See you next time on Making a Splash.